Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the final installment in our Anne Boleyn Day. We're thrilled to welcome back Tracy Borman, who is, of course, the author of Thomas Cromwell's biography and Tudor historian and she also has a TV series about to air of on Anne and her fall so she's the perfect person to talk to hi Tracy how are you very well thank you um and it's lovely to be back chatting with you it seems like quite a while actually since we were talking all things Cromwell but you know I've been putting the time to good use in between by cracking on with the new book um one thing that lockdown is fantastic for, I'm finding, is just having time to write with no other distractions. So I think I'm going to kind of miss that. You did say, though, that your 10-year-old has been amending your manuscript. You came back and found a, a rotten <laughs> yeah. edition. Yeah, a bit of a strange one crept in there when I was talking about, you know, Richard, Duke of York and, and his Neville allies kneeling before King Henry VI. And then I left my laptop stupidly. Uh, unattended and my uh, 10 year old completed that particular paragraph with a, a scenario of them farting out glitter uh, and just been watching the trolls movie so I think that was possibly what influenced her. <laughs> so yeah it's lucky you spotted it anyway <laughs> lucky you spotted it oh can you imagine if I'd ended up with my publisher that would have been amazing it would. It'd be even better if it made it into print just to watch Twitter melt down. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we are here today as part of our Anne Boleyn Day uh, to talk about the fall of Anne Boleyn. Um, and we're talking about it with you because you have a series imminently coming on Channel 5 about the fall of Anne Boleyn. Um, but let's, let's start, I guess, by talking about why at the beginning of 1536 time runs out for Anne why she would then having Henry waited so long to marry her uh, divorced the Catholic Church divorced his wife um, and made an absolute mess um, would then be keen to get rid of her and move on yeah I think that the crucial thing really for Anne was her failure to give Henry a son so obviously she had uh, the future Elizabeth um, in 1533, uh, shortly after uh, becoming queen. And, uh, and then she got pregnant um, at least two more times, possibly three, um, but miscarried twice. And then at the beginning of 1536, she was pregnant again. Hopes were high 
but it very much felt like the last throw of the dice because if Henry had still been infatuated by Anne, it wouldn't have been quite so much pressure for her. But I think for Henry, he was one of those men who is all about the thrill of the chase. And so he pursued Anne relentlessly for seven long years. Uh, he was a hunter. And then as soon as he had her, he realised, ah, she's just like all other women. And he rapidly lost interest. But for Anne, the really fatal thing was the fact that she hadn't given Henry a son. If she had, she'd have been absolutely safe, uh, home and dry. Not only that as well, but um, he sort of stuck with Anne because otherwise there's a possibility that he might just have to go back to Catherine and she dies as well at the beginning of 1536, doesn't she? So there's now this idea that exactly. if Anne is out of the way and Catherine is out of the way as well, then he's completely free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, all of the events seem to converge. It's, it's one of those strange times in history. And you think, can it just be a coincidence that literally on the same day as Catherine of Aragon's funeral, Anne has a miscarriage. So it all happens at the same time, January 1536, and, and rapidly starts to unravel. Well, I don't know if Henry would seriously have, have kind of contemplated going back to Catherine, having Catherine back in any way, given everything he'd gone through to get rid of that marriage. Um, but uh, what he was now facing was the prospect of freedom if he could disentangle himself from Anne Boleyn uh, by whatever means. So for the layman, me and everybody <laughs> else, let's just outline the manner in which Anne was taken down. Then we'll go back and talk about the issues we have with the events. What was she charged with? Who was she involved with? How does she end up with her head on the block? Okay, so Anne's downfall, I think, although it won't um, ever be known for certain unless we get new evidence, was masterminded uh, by the man who was then her arch enemy, Thomas Cromwell, who was the king's chief advisor and... Um, and it was thanks to Cromwell, really, uh, that Anne didn't have much longer left, either as queen or left actually to live, because Cromwell was motivated to get rid of her for good at the beginning of 1536. She'd made it very clear that it was his neck or hers. So it was like a battle to the death, really, between these two. So Cromwell knew that Anne had fallen from Henry VIII's favour. Um, but I think actually Henry would have been content with another annulment, just sending Anne off to a nunnery or, or whatever else, just getting him out of the marriage somehow. I think what Cromwell had in mind was a rather more, should we say, permanent solution to the Anne Boleyn problem. So what Cromwell did, he was a very clever lawyer, and he concocted a case of adultery. Uh, which was a treasonable offence in a royal wife, particularly when added to the offence of plotting to kill the king. So Cromwell kind of gathered what was little more than gossip and hearsay from Anne's ladies and brought a case of adultery that eventually involved no fewer than five men, including Anne's own brother. So incest was added to it as well. You know, Cromwell's really blackening her character. And there is also hints uh, of a plot to kill the king, that you know she has this notorious conversation with one of her alleged lovers, Henry Norris, 
whereby they sort of speculate about would Norris marry Anne if Henry was out of the way. So Cromwell twists that into a plot of murdering the king. And that really was the nail in Anne's coffin. So it was all done with bewildering speed. Uh, Cromwell went off sick uh, for a week in April. By the time he came back, I think he'd he'd come up with this whole plan, told it to Henry. Henry told him to go ahead. This is my theory anyway. And uh, and then it all very, very quickly unfolded. Um, and so Anne found herself you know, arrested and tried and executed within the space of 17 days. It is massively quick, isn't it? But... We now, I think anyone, even of myself, of a basic understanding of, of the documents and the history um, in, like, in terms of being a historian on it, um, believe that she was most probably innocent of, of what she was charged with. Is that fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. Uh, um, there's a brilliant book by Alison Weir called The Lady in the Tower. And Alison did some quite forensic research about the charges against Anne and proved that I think there were 17 separate counts of adultery. So 17 separate occasions when Anne was alleged to have betrayed the king. And Alison proved that on 15 of those, Anne wasn't even in the same place as her alleged lover. So... I think we can discount those. I think Anne had fought so hard to be queen. She wasn't a lady lacking in self-discipline. She'd held Henry VIII at bay for seven years. She wasn't going to just throw it all away. She knew how the court operated, how dangerous infidelity would be. I firmly believe she was innocent of the charges against her. Her only crime was not giving Henry a son. I'm inclined to agree completely um but let's take the charges um let's let's deal with the men first uh Mark Smeaton um this one I mean he confesses but tell us why he confesses so Mark Smeaton confesses um, after being interrogated or, or interviewed at Thomas Cromwell's house. Now, the theory is, and it was later repeated in the Spanish Chronicle, which isn't that reliable, that Cromwell tortured him. Now, there isn't any other evidence to support this. Um, perhaps rather than torture, he was intimidated. But I think he was kind of just bragging. I think Thomas Cromwell was very clever at getting information out of people as he had Anne's ladies-in-waiting. And he's probably just like, yeah, go on, tell us what's going on between you and the Queen kind of thing. And I think Mark Smeaton probably had a bit of a crush on Anne. And so he boasted that he'd you know, had sex with her. Um, and, and I think that's all it started as. And then, of course, he realises what he's said and he realises too late because effectively he's already confessed and he's not able to take back what he has said so poor old Mark Smeaton pays for what may just have been a, a kind of idle boast really. yeah for basically being a gobshite basically he pays <laughs> exactly, with his yeah. life doesn't he yeah couldn't have put it better myself yeah poor old Mark it's a big price to pay for that Sir Henry Norris yeah he had a thing for Anne first of all Mm -hmm. but he was guilty of anything more than just having a crush on the queen. I mean, because they don't end up torturing him at the end, do they? No, no, they don't. Um, and I, do, I think that really was 
his only crime, he was somewhat enthralled to Anne. She loved to gather these male admirers around her. She was a great flirt, certainly guilty of that, uh, if not actually going any further than that. And, and they had this great rapport, her and Henry Norris. They were very, very close. But of course, Henry was also very close to the king, one of his most kind of intimate attendants. And so this was deeply shocking, the idea that somebody from the king's own kind of privy chamber was also cavorting with the queen. And this is what Cromwell builds the case for murdering the king on, on this what's exactly going on between this this sort of close attendant and the king's wife why are they so close what are they plotting and and it all gets twisted into a case of treason of murder uh, not just adultery whereas i think you know the truth was both henry norris and anne enjoyed a bit of flirtation but it was harmless and um, the same with sir francis weston i think as well Mm, absolutely yeah just just the same I mean certainly yeah Anne absolutely loved to flirt she loved to be surrounded by men she was a man's woman not a woman's woman and and I think that was Cromwell's inspiration it's like you know he's given this task get rid of Anne Boleyn by whatever means so he draws inspiration from Anne's natural behavior which is to spend a lot of time with men um, to make it clear she loves their attentions she loves to flirt so yeah, um, absolutely. That's that's where it all started, and indeed where it ended for Anne. Alina, it's Brayton. Okay, thank <laughs> it's you. the pronunciation is screwing me there. Head. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, because I'm staring. Oh, right, I'm, oh, oh, tell, say it later. William Brayton. He's the same though, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. William Breton is the same. Um, again, nothing substantial to build the case on, just one of those men who Anne was spending time with, conversing with. Um, and you get the feeling that Anne wasn't a particularly pleasant um, mistress to her ladies. That's why they were so ready to talk to Cromwell. That's why they were so ready to twist innocent actions into something much darker and testify against her. William Breton, absolutely as harmless as Norris and Smeaton and all the rest of them, really. So there's nothing to build a substantial case on. And, and when I was um, filming this new series on the fall of Anne Boleyn, I talked to a, um, a quite well-renowned uh, lawyer today who basically said the entire case would have been thrown out. It was, it was the most kind of notorious miscarriage of justice that there has ever been. It literally wouldn't stand up in court today. Um, you've mentioned already her ladies in waiting. They do manage to, or Cromwell manages to make a Mad Shelton, for instance, flip on the Queen, doesn't she? Do you think by that point it was self-preservation? I think it probably was. I think Cromwell was, as I mentioned earlier, good at getting information out to people. He probably made it worth their while. He probably threatened as well as cajoled. Um, and yeah, absolutely. They, they got an eye to the future. Um, they might be, have been thinking, well, you know, my career at court's over if I don't do what Cromwell wants and what the king wants. Because if Cromwell, as I'm sure he did, questioned them in the name of the king, then they're going to make sure that they say what the king wants to hear. Uh, and that includes uh, ladies who have been very loyal to Anne, such as Mad Shelton. 
as well as ladies who'd been a good deal less loyal to her, such as her sister-in-law, uh, Jane Roachford, um, the, the wife of George Boleyn, who seemed to just have it in for Anne from the beginning. She's barking mad as well, isn't she? By the end, she, she literally <laughs> she is. She is barking mad. Yes. I'm I mean, she was, a, she is. we make light, but she was, she was an abused woman. I mean, she's married to Anne's brother and, and he, we'll get to him um, in a second, but I mean, he was a piece of work. Yeah. Oh, absolutely a piece of work and I think we don't know exactly what went on in their marriage but we know it was far from a happy marriage and um, the finger of blame I think has been justifiably pointed at George Berlin um, at, at his kind of foul treatment of his wife certainly I think she had to have some motive for lashing out in the way that she did I mean who would testify against their own husband uh, and, and kind of sister-in-law you know there had to be something quite serious going on there I always wonder if it is just a case of um, she's looking, is she smart enough to look further down the line and think if Anne goes, he goes, and maybe he's, he really goes and I'm rid of him. Yeah, exactly. It's a quite handy way of getting rid of a, a husband you absolutely despise, which it seems that she really did. And mm. there was certainly no love lost between her and Anne Boleyn either. I don't know if she was, there's a theory that she was actually quite jealous of Anne because Anne got to spend an awful lot of time with her husband, George. Um, and, you know, they, they seem to be kind of thick as thieves, whereas George didn't really seem to have anything other than disdain for, for his wife, Jane. So perhaps there was a bit of jealousy going on there, perhaps a kind of vindictive desire for revenge on Jane's part. Or perhaps she really was the wronged woman. And you kind of think, well, I can't blame her for wanting to get out of that marriage. Mm. I'm going to bring something up. Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> really don't judge me. But it's, again, it's going to be the Tudors, isn't it? Because that's the only, only source I have for my, my knowledge oh, yeah. on the Tudors. But when you watch her, obviously, you know, they've used rumours and things like that to kind of over-dramatise it. But you feel really sorry for her. Like, really sorry. I just want to stand there. I just want to give her a hug. Say, it's going to be okay. It's going <laughs> to be okay. Yeah, you do feel sorry for her. And I think they portray that well. I'm you know, an unashamed fan of the Tudors. Um, when I was researching her for um, this series, I developed a whole new sympathy for her because I'd, I guess I've always seen her as quite hard to like, even though she's absolutely wronged and you know everything that happened to her. But she, you know, she's quite a prickly character. She could, she could be very, very unpleasant to... She's power-hungry as well, which is never yeah. an appealing trait, is it? It's not, it's not appealing. And she, you know, she was pretty horrific to her stepdaughter, the Princess Mary, um, and the like. And you just think... And, and actually vindictive towards her rival, Catherine of Aragon. And, but, but she was incredibly brave very, very dignified. I mean, she just had all of this flung at her that was totally false, totally cooked up by others, probably Cromwell. And yet you think, why wasn't she just screaming and ranting and going absolutely nuts? But she really kept her cool. And I just ended up hugely admiring her. And then at the end, just feeling so much sympathy for her. Um, I really did. I mean, she was even her enemy at the Imperial Ambassador Chapuise said that she was braver than a lion. And I think that's absolutely true. Thomas Wyatt, the only yeah. one who might have, well, years previously had sexual relations with Anne, mm. but he gets off. I mean, how does that, how does that happen? Isn't that interesting? And I think this does give weight 
to something that Hilary Mantel brings out very much in the Wolf Hall trilogy um, is that um, Cromwell was gunning for the enemies of Cardinal Wolsey. In bringing down Anne Boleyn, it was kind of a neat way of kind of getting rid of men who had been enemies of the Cardinal and enemies of himself too. Now, Thomas Wyatt stood out as the exception to that. And it was never at Cromwell's orders that he was arrested uh, for Anne Boleyn and the alleged adultery. So you're absolutely right. There was probably more against him than any of the other men who were arrested. But uh, Thomas Cromwell was seen to be a bit shocked by Wyatt's sudden arrest. And he, I think it's almost certainly him who got him out of the tower. He managed to get him a pardon. Um, he played no part in, in the trial um, and all charges were dropped against Wyatt. And I do think that's such a compelling piece of evidence for all of this being cooked up by Cromwell because it's his enemies, it's Wolsey's enemies, who are the ones who are brought down in all of this. And Thomas Wyatt was a close friend of Thomas Cromwell, so there's no way he was going to see him executed for this crime as well. Um, Sir Richard Page as well is another one where everything's dropped, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And another one where Cromwell doesn't really... Um, have a bone to pick with him so to speak so it's it's fascinating you just have you have to look at the ones who got away as well as well as the ones who didn't and I think that does speak volumes then Cromwell himself did later boast that he'd had dreamt up the whole affair of the queen uh, he boasted that to Chapuis and now that's been taken to be slightly unreliable because why would Cromwell admit that he was the one who brought her down um, but I do actually think that he was talking the truth he was speaking the truth on that occasion he was telling Chapuis how it was um, and and that he had you know it was all down to him he had thought up the whole case against her and he'd made sure uh, that it all went through and that she lost her life because of it. Um, we haven't yet talked about the um the ickiest of the accusations, which is, um, and I mean, it's, it's vile that they'd even go there, but this is someone who Cromwell has a bona fide beef with, um, and that's Anne's brother. Mm. And so there are these accusations, um, which I agree with you. I think this is all coming from Crom Cromwell and that to an extent, Henry would have just been happy to pack her off to a nunnery. Um, but then he's going to go along with whatever gets rid of her in the end. Cause I just, I just think, Cromwell's like the puppet master at this stage. Um, but George Boleyn is accused of incest, mm. which is therefore treason. Um, and it, it's said that twice um, he has had sexual relations with his sister. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and from the trial papers, which are in the National Archives, the most salacious bit is uh, regarding George's relationship with his sister and the sort of quite graphic descriptions of what they get up to. Um, and, and it was intended very much to shock. This was the nail in the coffin. Adultery is bad enough. Incest, that's a whole different ball game. And Cromwell knew it. He wanted to blacken Anne's character beyond all redemption. And that's why this charge of incest was brought in. Well, I guess he thought as well, if I'm bringing in the other men who Anne is spending a lot of time with, then she, the one that she spends the most time with is her own brother. Now, most of that case against George Boleyn rested on a single letter that George wrote to his sister, simply 
asking her how her pregnancy was going. And uh, that was it. He didn't say he was the father, uh, none of that, but that was enough. It was twisted into something suspicious and sinister and therefore George was rounded up. Um, but he and Cromwell were enemies. Um, Cromwell really resented the rise of the Boleyns after um, Anne had become queen and was determined to stamp them down again. I think the one who was lucky, the one who escaped, um, was Anne's father, Thomas, who really, obviously, he wouldn't, well, I say obviously, I don't think he'd have been embroiled in the accusations of uh, adultery, but the fact that he survived and he went on to live another day, despite all of this, I think he was a bit of a lucky man. But I think by the end, he was just glad to escape with his life, even though his political career was in ruins. He'd seen two of his children executed. But, you know, frankly, what a piece of work Thomas Boleyn was, actually taking part in the trial against his own daughter. You know, he, he helped send her to her death. And you just think, my God, this is her father. He's a and rat, so I, isn't he? I, I, absolutely right. I can't feel sorry for Thomas Boleyn. Absolutely, yeah. Just dreadful. What a, what a guy, really. <laughs> I was going to say a little, a tiny, tiny part of me feels sorry for him. A very, very tiny part of really? me. Really? Yeah. Why? I know, but... Uh, struggling to find a positive in there, Alina. Even if he was nice to puppies and kittens, he's still a shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. But Anne, Anne is arrested on the 2nd of May in 1536. What happens? Where do they take her? And how does she react? So Anne was at Greenwich at the time. um, And she'd been there for the the traditional May Day tournaments. She is taken by barge uh, to the Tower. um, And she's kept there in quite honourable state. She's kept in the same apartments that were refurbished for her coronation uh, less than three years earlier. Um, And uh, she's sort of quite bewildered. She doesn't really know what she stood accused of. Um, And can you imagine the atmosphere in that boat as she is rowed from Greenwich to the Tower and Thomas Cromwell is in the boat? The Duke of Norfolk, her uncle, is there. And she, I mean, God, if if ever I could be a fly on the wall. Actually, I probably wouldn't choose that because I couldn't bear it. I just couldn't my toes (laughs) hurting just thinking about that atmosphere and what it must have been like as she knows something very terribly uh, is amiss and um, and her mortal enemies are there uh, and and goodness me um, it's said that she sat in silence uh, for the entire journey um, and then once in the tower she kind of had this mental collapse and was cried out oh it is too good for me when she saw the apartments that she was going to be kept in and that was taken down as evidence of her guilt because why would she say it was too good for her if she hadn't done something wrong I mean it's all quite pathetic really yeah I mean so she she collapses doesn't she as she is taken in yes yeah, she collapses um, and sort of becomes hysterical. And uh, William Kingston, the constable of the tower, sort of guides her in. Um, but he has been appointed to really be a spy as well. He places um, 
ladies who he knows will report to him uh, to look after Anne in her household. Um, and really, Cromwell has ordered Kingston to report everything, Anne's every movement, her every word. They're taken down by faithful old Kingston and they are reported to Cromwell because Cromwell is desperate for more material for the trial. He's the world's most renowned lawyer. He knows it's a pretty flimsy case. So whatever he can get, that's what he's determined to secure uh, while Anne is now a prisoner. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On the 12th of May, uh, Weston, Brereton, Norris and Smeaton stand trial, don't they? Mm. That's right. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> all goes pretty horribly wrong. Uh, very, very quickly, um, because um, it's obvious that everything is weighted against them. They're not allowed a defence lawyer. Um, they just have to face the charges. Uh, they don't plead guilty. And I think um, I think they're to be admired for that. In fact, you know, the only one to confess was Mark Smeaton. Um, and the others denied the charges. But, you know talk about uh weighted against you the the jury is made up of cromwell's kind of supporters and those who want to see the Berlin's brought down the exception being the duke of norfolk Anne's uncle and thomas Berlin, um her father but you know they they know what they have to do they know what's expected of them by the king so the trial is pretty brief from what we can tell uh, because they're not allowed to speak for themselves. They're not allowed uh, to show any evidence in their defence. And so, you know, it's a done deal. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, it's just, I mean, honestly, it, given how many things can get a suspect off a murder accusation today, <laughs> yeah, it, it wouldn't have even got to court it, today. It wouldn't have got to court. So, you know, it's just quite staggering as a miscarriage of justice. So on the 15th, there are two trials. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about the first one, uh, about George Boleyn? George Boleyn's trial. Um, it's interesting that we don't actually have that much detail, either about his um, or about Anne's. There's slightly more about Anne's. But um, George uh, is kind of staggered by the charges against uh, him. He absolutely uh, firmly denies um, the, the levels of the, the incest allegation that's leveled against him. Um, but, you know, it's the same as the other men's trial. It's a foregone conclusion. It's all over quite quickly. And he is condemned uh, for 
adultery with his sister and he is returned to his lodgings inside the tower. Now, he seems to have been kept separate to the other men. There's sort of, even now, the Tudors are big on status. And so even now, you know, they kind of respect his status as being higher than the other men. So he's given, you know, slightly better accommodation inside the tower. And then Anne's trial is extraordinary for, you know, the injustice, but also for her bravery. Now, among the many things that surprised me when I was researching this new series is that there are so many myths around Anne's downfall. One of them is that, you know, she wore red, which is true for her trial. It's well attested. She wore red. Now, it, that's often just said, and I've said it in my own books, I admit, it's the colour of martyrs. You know, she's making a point here. Look at me. I'm being wrongly accused. I'm going to my death. I'm a martyr. In fact, no. Uh, we talked to this fantastic dress historian in the programme and red was seen as a very humble colour. It was the colour worn by, by commoners. So in wearing red, Anne is trying to appear um, full of humility, um, like a sort of modest woman, um, because why would she go in? all guns blazing, dressed in the colour of martyrs, you know, just antagonising Henry even more. So it makes much more sense that she's very, very cleverly trying to do everything she can to prove that she's humble, she's modest, and above all, she's innocent. Um, nonetheless, the charges include adultery, because it's adultery against the king, that's high treason, um, incest, uh, also as well... Um, there's another high treason charge in the form of um, the plot to kill Henry with her lovers so that she could marry Henry Norris, yeah. of all people. Um, how, how does the sentencing come about? So, well, Anne actually defends herself incredibly eloquently, so much so that you can tell the atmosphere in the courtroom is turning in her favour. You know, there's lots of kind of boos and jeers when she walks in. And then things change and they change because people see how brave Anne is, how dignified and how cleverly she defends herself. And so really, you know, the, the charges look even more ridiculous than they did before. But even if there is more sympathy for Anne, the jury would never dare to contradict the king and the king's wishes or to contradict the wishes of Thomas Cromwell. They know what they've got to do. They're there to do a specific job, and that is to condemn Anne Boleyn. Well, when the charge is, the charges are read out, Anne doesn't show any emotion. When the verdict is read out, she still doesn't show any emotion. She is incredibly composed. I don't know how she did it. She must have been boiling with rage inside at this huge, huge miscarriage of justice, but she is incredibly brave and very, very dignified. And she wins so many supporters as a result of that. But of course, she doesn't win her life. She'd once been betrothed to um, Henry Percy, the mm -hmm. Earl of Northumberland. And he's a member of the jury. And so, of course, he finds her guilty too. But then what happens? Well, yeah, but he breaks down. He, he really is absolutely traumatized by this because I think Henry Percy and Anne Boleyn really um, loved each other I think they were they had some kind of whether it was a formal pre-contract or just a, a less formal agreement to marry um, and of course this was seized upon uh, in order to have Henry's marriage to Anne annulled um, 
after the trial, this is one of those things I just think, oh, come on now, because, you know, they can't annul Henry's marriage to Anne before the trial because then they can't try her for adultery because if she wasn't married to Henry, she couldn't have committed adultery. So they wait until after the trial, after she's been found guilty, then they have the marriage annulled. <laughs> but what's like, brilliant, you really make it up. you can't because previously you had dragged Henry Percy down from Northumberland to declare that he had been betrothed yes. to her, that he had never, sorry, that he had never been betrothed to her so yes. that the king can marry Anne Boleyn and get rid of Catherine of Aragon. And then they drag him back and have him say um, <laughs> that he was so that he can get rid of Anne Boleyn. It just, yeah, it yeah. belief, doesn't it? Isn't it? extraordinary yeah poor old henry percy's like hang on a minute but you told me not to say that and now i have to kind of say that yes in fact uh, we were pre-contracted um so yeah absolutely when it comes to the law it has to work both ways for henry um so and i mean by that henry the eighth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah not poor henry percy who's dead a few months later no. um so on the exactly. 14th of may the marriage is declared null and void. But now you're looking at the sentence. Now, the sentence that she faced by law is being burnt alive. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the most horrific imaginable uh, death, really. Um, although you can also be boiled alive, which is also sounds pretty horrific. But uh, burning is what everybody fears. Now, uh, this is when Henry gets the chance to appear oh so generous because um, it's up to him to commute that to beheading, which is a much swifter death. But he goes further still because he has already sent for the expert swordsman from Calais before the trial even takes place. You can tell that because of how long it would have taken the message to get to Calais and then the man, man to come over. So this is seen by Henry as, you know, look, aren't I a loving and generous husband? You know, I'm going to guarantee the most swift and you know, pain-free death possible by sending for this swordsman who will dispatch you quickly because, you know, frankly, axemen, not always that accurate, um, as poor old uh, Lady Margaret Pole would learn to her cost. Um, and Cromwell. And Cromwell himself. <laughs> not good um but the swordsman you know before you even know what's happened your, your head's off and so henry does this it's interesting there are a few other concessions as well um so for example a private execution is planned inside the tower the first one ever the first official execution inside the walls of the tower now this is a big concession because Otherwise, executions are like the football matches of their day. They take place on, on Tower Hill. Hundreds of thousands of people come along. But for Anne, you know, the, 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 there are going to be a lot fewer people to witness her demise. Also, um, he orders a new set of clothes for the executioner because one thing that really surprised me is executioners didn't dress in black or wear a hood. You know, that's how they're always shown. It's fact, expensive, they isn't it, to be dressed yeah. all in black at this time? Yeah, but also people wanted you to stand out if you're an executioner because basically they're seen as lepers in, in society. You, so they're dressed more like jesters, you know, brightly coloured clothes, heads uncovered. But for Anne's executioner, Henry orders a new set of quite sombre clothes. And his intention with this is so that when Anne approaches the scaffold, she won't know which one on the scaffold is the executioner and that's seen as again a kindness to Anne so she won't be kind of terrified when she sees her executioner so there's all these things that are apparently generous 
on Henry's part, but I just wonder, you know, guilty conscience yeah, at all, much. Henry? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a few days between the verdict and the sentencing being carried out. Hmm. Earlier you said she was being watched all the time. How did she spend those few days? So she spent a lot of it in prayer. Um, her mood uh, veered between calm acceptance and absolute hysteria. Uh, so Kingston describes how when Anne is told that she's to be beheaded rather than burnt, she becomes hysterical. She sort of laughs that I have a little neck, so it'll be swift and, and kind of puts her hands about her neck and laughs heartily. Now, you know, he's, he's shocked by this. It's, he said, I've seen few people who take so much joy in the prospect of their death or words to that effect. And, um, and he can't kind of, fathom it but I think you know poor old Anne she's holding it together most of the time you can forgive her the occasional relapse into absolute hysteria at the thought of what lies ahead the men are executed on the 17th are they what would she have known about that I think Anne would have been uh, I think Anne would have been aware of the execution of the men um, she stood accused with um, it would have been hard to miss because they were executed outside the walls of the tower huge crowds gathered for that she'd have been aware of the um, the Ferrari the noise um, probably the cheers that rose up as the axe fell I mean you know the mind boggles I just don't think Anne would have been able to see the executions uh, that's often portrayed that she'd have been looking out her window and seen them from where she was she wouldn't have been able to unless she was moved to somewhere where she could see them, which is one theory. But I just don't think I think it would have been enough. She knew what was going on. It must have been absolutely chilling for her. Did she write the poem, Oh, Death, Rock Me Asleep? Uh, that's there is a theory um, that she did, but I don't think there's a great deal of proof for that. There's also a theory around a letter that she may or may not have written to Henry uh, from the tower and that's also seen as potentially a forgery so so there are still frustratingly so many unanswered questions about Anne but I think really that's why we're all still so fascinated by her story almost 500 years on. Is it right that um, there was kind of a full start on her execution so that she would have been subjected to believing she was going to die and then having it put off? That's right. Um, it was originally set for the 18th of May, um, but Cromwell wanted more time to clear the tower of would-be supporters of Anne. So he wanted to get them all out of the way. Anybody who might show sympathy towards her or even perish the thought, try to free her, um, he wanted them cleared out. And so it was delayed by a day. Can you imagine, though, psychologically what mm. that must have done? And you're all prepared, you're prepared for death. And I think that's when Anne did slightly lose it. Um, it's like, you know, I thought that I'd be um, past my pain by now. Um, and she had to wait a whole other 24 hours. Uh, the 19th of May, talk us through it. So the 19th of May, the execution was scheduled for um, nine o'clock in the morning. From the very early hours, Anne has been up and she's been praying. In fact, she probably didn't go to bed at all, I would imagine, the night before her execution. Um, she's made her preparations. Um, but I think even now, she's probably hoping for a last minute reprieve. Is Henry really going to go through with it? I don't think she's the only one. Because Kingston, the constable of the tower, 
seems a bit unprepared even now you know there's no coffin ready um and the the gates of the tower are accidentally left open believe it or not so that a thousand people flood in to come and witness the execution when it was supposed to be private so there were these various gaffes that suggest unpreparedness um well Anne. Uh, doesn't obviously get a last minute reprieve. She's led from her apartments um, on the other side of the White Tower um, to what is opposite uh, now the Waterloo block where the crown jewels are. Um, and it was there, not on Tower Green where her execution is commemorated, but it's there that she is executed. So she mounts the scaffold, the crowd falls silent, and again, just as in her trial, the atmosphere changes from hostility to sympathy as they see how dignified, how courageous Anne is. Didn't she dress for the occasion? She did dress for the occasion. Again, she wore uh, quite modest um, clothes and uh, the, the telling thing that she wore um, was an English gable hood. Now she was renowned for the French hood. She she really kind of um, made that a, a sort of fashion statement when she was at the height of her powers but it became associated with her kind of scarlet woman reputation. So you see in her reign, even before her downfall, whenever she wants to project herself as a virtuous queen, she wears an English gable hood, such as was worn by her predecessor, Catherine of Aragon. And that's what she wears for her execution. And clothes carry enormous meaning in this period. So everybody would have understood why she was doing that. Yes, she was incredibly um, dignified on the scaffold. Um, she made a, a speech that's recorded, didn't she? Yes, that's right. She made this you know, incredible speech. And you might expect her to have used this opportunity when all hope is gone to really say it. Tell it how it was. You know? oh, I would have screamed <laughs> from the rooftops. I would have done everything from the size of his manhood to every way in which he'd <laughs> wronged me before they took me out. Exactly. Yeah, Henry was crap in bed. You would just go for it, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd just absolutely go for it. But uh, what she did was incredibly dignified. She didn't protest against her sentence. She didn't protest against the king. She called him you know, a loving and a kind prince, and, and he'd been a wonderful husband. Um, and you think, what the hell is she doing? This is a fiery woman. She's, you know, she doesn't mind defending herself. She's, she spent her life doing this. Why on earth is she so meek and mild now at the time of her death? And I think the reason is her daughter. She is protecting her daughter's interests. She wants Henry not to uh, think badly of Elizabeth. Um, she wants to kind of excite his sympathy. Um, and if really she'd said something to antagonise Henry, on the scaffold um she feared that he would take it out on their daughter so she was thinking of elizabeth that's why she did it otherwise you know i kind of wish there'd been an alternative speech where she really did let rip <laughs> absolutely should we do the shall i read it it's only a few lines isn't it oh yeah yeah please do I, fox's one will do won't it yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so she said 
Good Christian people, I am come hither to die for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king and send him long to reign over you, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O oh Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. I mean, amazing. What, what a kind of humble um, and generous speech that is. I mean, generous isn't the word under the circumstances. But as I say, Anne is a clever lady. She's doing that for a purpose and she's doing it for her daughter. She is helped by her ladies um, who remove her outer gown and um, her headdress and put her hair in a cap so that her hair won't impede the progress of the sword. Um, and then famously, the swordsman um, makes a noise um, so that Anne turns the other way, away from him. And in that moment, he reaches down into the straw on the scaffold, pulls out the sword and swipes off Anne's head with a single blow as she is saying her final prayers, repeating her prayers over and over, Lord Jesus, you receive my soul, and her head uh, is smitten off. And it's said that her eyes and lips continue to move for several seconds. Um, and in the course of this, making this programme, we visited an anatomy expert at the University of Leicester who confirmed that was entirely possible because you know, the nerves take a while to catch up with what's happening to, uh, in, in the case of a major trauma like a beheading. So it's entirely possible that it looked like Anne was still conscious. Her eyes and lips were still moving. It's quite horrific. Wow. I, wow. That's all I can say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so chilling, isn't it? Poor old Anne. And then, and then it kind of almost descends into farce. You know, nobody's thought about the coffin. So um, because she's executed right next to the armory, um, they, they go in there and hastily find an arrow chest um, to bundle her remains in. Now, arrow chest, I always thought, well, surely it'd be too small, but an arrow chest was actually very, very long and thin. And Anne was a slender lady, so she fitted in. Um, and, her, and she was buried, um, I think, three hours later um, in the chapel of St. Peter ad vincula um, and then would later be joined there by uh, Thomas Moore, sorry, Thomas... Cromwell, Thomas More was already there, uh, Thomas Cromwell, and by another wife, uh, Catherine Howard, who's also laid to rest there. So it's, it's described as the saddest spot on earth. And I think it's also one of the most historic spots on earth. Um, does Henry show any remorse? None whatsoever. In public, we don't know, of course, in private. Um, I think there is a record that he's seen uh, weeping or he has nightmares, but it, you know, it's all hearsay. We don't know for certain. I think with Henry, he has this almost pathological ability to just move on, to, to just distance himself from something. Right, that's done. I'm going to move on. The very next day, he's betrothed to Jane Seymour. He is a big man and, toddler, uh, isn't he? Uh, I mean, there's a few of them in leadership roles oh, on yeah. the planet at the moment, but just this, yeah, this oh, utter yeah, yeah. divorcing oneself yeah. from reality. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, I think we would say compartmentalising. I mean, really, on a great scale, he's just like, okay, that's the end of one marriage, right. 
let's marry the next wife and see if she can give me a son. I mean, you wouldn't want to be Jane Seymour, really, uh, in, in those, that kind of aftermath of Anne's downfall. But that's what he does, and he never, ever expresses any remorse for Anne. Indeed, he can't wait to get rid of all trace of Anne, removing her initials from his palaces, although I love the fact they missed a couple at Hampton Court. You can mm. still see some H Henry and Anne. Um, but really, he wants to airbrush Anne from history from that day forward. Can't bear her name to be mentioned. Can't really bear to look at their daughter, Elizabeth. So she's kind of just exiled, really, from court for quite a long time. Um, and yeah, Anne is absolutely... Uh, well, she is dead to him, but she never existed, really, in his mind. He doesn't talk about her. It's all about wife number three, Jane Seymour. Does she have the last laugh, though, with uh, Elizabeth's ah. extended Protestant reign? Yes, she does. And I think just in Elizabeth herself, she has the last laugh. I mean, it's history's greatest irony. Henry spends all that time and effort and worry trying to get a son. And it's his daughter who is by far the most successful of his heirs. She reigns for almost 45 years. She's called, the, you know, it's called a golden age. She's the virgin queen. Um, it's, it's a buoyant period in England's history, uh, all thanks to Anne Boleyn's daughter. And of course, as you say, she also uh, establishes Protestantism more firmly um, as the sort of official religion of England. And that was a cause very dear to her mother Anne's heart. And I think, though, as well, it's fascinating to look at how Elizabeth expressed her sympathy and devotion to her late mother. She'd been told that her mother was you know a whore and an adulteress but I don't she grew up not believing that and she made her own mind up about Anne Boleyn and I think it's really telling that even though she didn't talk about Anne much she surrounded herself with Boleyn relatives and one thing that I got to do in this series which was probably the greatest highlight of my career was to look at that locket ring that Elizabeth had um, which contained a portrait of herself opposite a portrait of her mother. And it was one of her most treasured possessions. She kept it with her till the day she died. So Elizabeth really was Anne's revenge. Tracy, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about the fall of Anne Boleyn um, and to do her some justice for those who perhaps have a very sketchy understanding of why she got her, cut, got her head cut off um, and didn't question the charges against her. I think we've thoroughly... Uh, reputed them yeah absolutely yeah we can we can restore Anne's reputation I think through your through your amazing work and all the followers you have and I know you know the fact that Anne has got so many fans worth worldwide that you know people realize that she's a wronged woman but she's an incredibly admirable one too join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Professor Gary Sheffield about Douglas Haig is he a butcher or is he a hero or is it somewhere in between? Um, you know us historians, we can never give you a straight answer, <clears throat> but we'll be answering your questions about Douglas Haig and talking about um, basically this, this ageing now uh, perception of bungling generals on the Western Front. 20 odd years of work done since by historians has really challenged that and we really need to put it to bed to a certain extent. Don't forget you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. All you need to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. Um, it would help us keep going in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis, which we would dearly love to do because we're having loads of fun. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, 
And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.